Six months, the time the New York City Housing Authority has to develop a reorganization plan. Last year, the agreement between the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Southern District of New York, the City of New York, and NYCHA required an outside consultant to perform a management review of NYCHA operations and recommend how to best achieve compliance with NYCHA's obligations under the agreement. Let's pause to note. Not only was NYCHA placed under a federal monitor, but the joint agreement requires several specific action plans to address chronic conditions, including peeling lead paint, faltering heat, broken elevators, mold, and pests, stemming from long-term deterioration of NYCHA's 174,000 housing units. Undaunted, Greg Russ took the helm of NYCHA in August 2019. The report by KPMG and the Bonner Group, the outside consultants, was made public in December 2019. Now NYCHA has six months, or rather five months left, to present a full-scale reorganization plan. In this episode of What's the Data Point, Greg Russ joins CBC President Andrew Ryan in a conversation about why he took on this tough job, working with the Federal Monitor to facilitate change, working with residents to instill confidence, and what needs to happen at NYCHA to make it a high-performing agency that can ably serve its 380,000 residents. I'm Maria Dulles signing off for myself and my co-host Ben Max. We'll be back behind the mics with a new episode soon. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our recent work at GothamGazette.com and CBCNY.org for the latest news and analysis in this budget and legislative session. And we welcome your ideas for topics and guests. We're at TweetBenMax and at Maria Dulles. Enjoy the conversation. New Yorkers, the chairman of the board, of another board, Frank Sinatra said, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Uh, so New Yorkers think that every job outside New York is kind of cushy. <laughs> so you're in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and you kind of know this, you know, you know this field. You know, the feds have pulled back from public housing and all those housing authorities you worked in. They all changed and evolved their models, but not NYCHA. NYCHA held on to a traditional public housing model and went from, frankly, a very well, a good performing agency to one that was beset with challenges. In 2015, because of asthma, a mold special master was put in place. We know that there were 601 heating outages that um, take hours to fix last winter. There's, each elevator on average is, has an outage every month, over, over one outage a month. Then there's an investigation by the Southern District, also the City Department of Investigation, culminating with a city HUD agreement for a, a, a special monitor. And by some accounts, the reason um, NYCHA wasn't put in receivership is because the feds didn't want to manage it either. Yet, you came here. Why did you take the job? <laughs> uh, first off, thank you for that very kind introduction. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, I think that that job that you mentioned, Director of Troubled Agency Recovery, when you see this program, when you kind of grow up with something, uh, I didn't particularly start out uh, to become a public housing person, but that's the path that unfolded and uh, was handed to me in a good way. And um, when you see this program work, you see the potential, and then you realize that the largest agency in the country, um, uh, with a population pretty much the size of Minneapolis, is, is in trouble. It's in a difficult place. So one of the things that um, made me think about this was the opportunity to 
advance the discussion here, figure out, um, as has been done in smaller scale in many other communities, what's the uh, plan that would put NYCHA on a, on a course for uh, delivering a better product, for stabilizing the, the housing conditions, and can this be solved? So in the beginning, um, uh, I think one of the things that it, it didn't seem, um, uh, it wasn't the first thing that popped up when I was sitting in Minneapolis and started the conversation. But there's a couple things here that I think are unique and were attractive in terms of coming here. And one is the agreement we have with the Southern District. And uh, Bart Schwartz is back. Raise your hand, Mr. Sch That's my partner. And uh, he's the special monitor. And uh, we have an opportunity to use the agreement as a platform, which was attractive to someone looking to come here, because the agreement sets a different mark in the, puts a different flag in the ground. And I think we can build on that to actually make the changes that NYCHA needs to make. So that plus a combination of um, just believing that we have to fix this, that uh, uh, we owe it to the residents, we owe it to the city. And in fact, when NYCHA steps, NYCHA steps in a national framework. And folks, uh, we can't do things here in New York without impacting the national discussion. So I think it's important if we believe in the mission and we believe in the program. So let's talk about um, the monitor. Thanks, Bart, for coming. Um, now, you have to, the agreement the city has with, with HUD, the city has to kick in $2 billion for capital, maybe another couple of billion to implement some changes you, you will outline. And if I understand correctly, there was, you know, short-term 130,000 inspections over, over a few months for, for lead, which was probably an unrealistic goal, and I don't believe it was met. But furthermore, you have action plans for lead, mold, pests, elevators, boilers, and you have to reorganize. The agreement allows the monitor to approve those plans, monitor everything you do. Now, CEOs, most are willing to take responsibility, but many would chafe under that um, kind of micromanagement, some would say. What makes you think it's an opportunity? Well, I think, uh, I, first, I genuinely believe it is. And I think if we, what's the relationship we have with uh, the monitor and his team, and how are we defining that? Because you could look at it like, oh, gee, I'm, uh, uh, I'm going over here to do this work, and I have this other group of folks that are going to tell me exactly how to do it. But that's not how it's been working. What's emerging, I think, is, um, uh, first of all, figuring out how to work together, uh, which is important in any partnership, whether uh, however we want to describe them. And the second thing is that I think the demands of the agreement and the questions the monitor asks us um, really help the organization focus. Uh, those areas are uh, well defined in the agreement, and um, but they reflect the larger capital needs of the organization. So focusing on these things has been extremely helpful in terms of organizing for compliance. A lot of the work that's been done even before I got here uh, and um, uh, started creating the internal structures that we need to uh, do better in those areas, but also to create the departments the agreement requires. So the working relationship, I think, is one that we're looking to as a partnership and looking to in a productive way. 
And um, I think it's helpful uh, that we approach it that way because, you know, the agreement has timelines that go out for 20 years. And um, so we're kind of in it together. And if you're in it together, then you should work together. Do you foresee any difficulty meeting any of the deadlines in the agreement? And what would be the rub with the monitor on that? Well, I think we've been, um, both parties, the monitors team and our team, have been cognizant of those deadlines, but we've also been cognizant that we have to produce a workable product. In other words, these action plans can't be just, oh, here's plan A, we're going to put it on the shelf and then forget about it. You actually have to implement it. So I think there's been an eye towards designing things that are actually impacting the organization and ultimately will impact service. So uh, we feel like uh, we have uh, significant efforts. The heat plan is a good example. Um, that plan was approved in December, and that reflects work that goes back even a year ahead of time, it reflects a lot of off-season investments that we made, and it reflects changes in everything from um, uh, how we operate and the terms of that. That's all pretty complicated stuff logistically, and so I think the approach that the monitor and uh, our team have taken is let's get those right because we want to try and get uh, those prototype early days to work. And the second thing I'd say is when we do have plans, we don't see these as a static document, that they will evolve as we get experience in the field. And the way I describe it is, yeah, NYCHA has a central office. Uh, but everything important about NYCHA is at the property. And we have to make sure the plan works all the way down to the property. So let's, let's start with capital and then going into the operator, sure. if we could. You know, yeah. We've done some work at CBC about capital. You put out, the NYCHA before your time put out a physical needs assessment saying that there's a five-year need is $32 billion. Mm -hmm. That was 18 months ago that that came out. So let's talk about the conditions and the needs and then the solutions if we could. What are the financial needs and what shape are the properties in? Because CBC said in 10 years, 90% of it might is at risk of, of not even being worth saving. Sure. Um, how do you see it? So I just want to say one thing. That report was one of the reasons I came, actually, because it was the first uh, very cogent and clear, and I wanted to thank the group for, for that. And Sean Campion. And uh, Sean, well. yes, yeah. And uh, the report also has the, the great advantage of being accurate. So uh, it is true. We are in a place where if, if uh, we've probably missed, if, if we thought about us as a conventional owner, every 20 years you're reinvesting in a property in some way. Could be a small thing, could be a big thing. So we've missed at least three cycles of reinvestment. And the capital need is as described. And the physical needs assessment that you mentioned is kind of like a point-in-time fix-as-is number. Um, there are some numbers that, as we develop the compliance plans and so forth, for example, the physical need uh, um, doesn't include a number for asbestos removal and some numbers like that. So that accounts for um, uh, the number that we're working with today. There's a lot of costs in that number that just taking the snapshot didn't include. So. Uh, we have two things to think about. One, we have the 62,000 units that are part of the PACT and RAD, and that includes uh, the RAD conversions, build to preserve, the transfer to preserve. Um, 
and those units are on track and on target and we have a lot of partners including HDC has been a fabulous partner for us in this uh, effort and then we have 110,000 units and uh, we are hoping in in the next uh, uh, 45 to 60 days we're going to propose a set of ideas to raise capital for those units and, and you're going to preview those ideas now or uh, I wish I could uh, we're not um, I, the math has to work and uh, we've been meeting uh, with a group of uh, folks the past uh, two months to begin to run up a bunch of ideas and um, uh, I'd say that the way we want to think about this is we we have the ability uh, we think um, inside the rules that are provided for how housing authorities and HUD work mm -hmm. uh, to potentially uh, offer some ideas that would stabilize the portfolio. And uh, to your point about um, the uh, advancing need, we think we need to make a near-term investment, and by near-term I mean in the next three, three years. It needs to be substantial and it needs to at least address the compliance areas in the agreement, and it would also have to address other work in the building if we can get to it. Uh, if, for example, we do mold, we're talking pipes. As soon as you talk pipes, you're talking uh, how do you do a high-rise over? Um, could you abandon pipes in place? Could you do other building technologies that would allow us to work in these structures? All of that is dependent on raising the capital to have that conversation. So. That's coming, and uh, we will propose a plan for it. So you talked about the two, 62,000 units um, going through PACT, and a lot of that is, is what's rad, the rental assistance demonstration, public-private partnerships to bring in capital to rehab, private management. Um, there's been some experience in the city. You've done a lot in Cambridge in your prior life. Mm. However, um, you're kind of getting the easy stuff done now or in the pipeline, and it gets harder. Because yes. you have to do the big towers. Now, I've spent a lot of time with you. There's a lot of opposition to every part of this plan. Yes. So the political, financial, operational challenges, how do you, how do you meet those challenges? Because you say those 62,000 units are in the pipeline, but the easy stuff is hard and the hard stuff is unknown. So uh, there's a couple. One is we just have to be straight with folks, with, with our residents, with the People have a stake in what how NYCHA moves. You know, this is not a, this is an issue that confronts us in terms of um, can NYCHA be believed? Uh, I think a lot of residents, when you talk to them, they've been at the short end of things. Either uh, we haven't delivered on something as simple as a work order and said we haven't shown up when we said we'd show up to do the work, or something as complex as how are we going to reinvest in your development. So. Um, we have to lift uh, ourselves out of that. And I think the first thing is to begin to act in ways that uh, folks will see are genuine and that we're really trying here. And I think we see that in the Fulton group together. Um, uh, Can you when, tell people a little about that dynamic? I yeah, mean, it's been I mean, fascinating for me. Well, Fulton has been a, a Fulton, Chelsea, Elliott is uh, really in a great area. It's kind of a growth area in the city. And we have uh, those properties uh, in and around that 10 or 15 block. And we've been meeting as a working group with, I'd say, the whole array of stakeholders, including the residents, 
and CBC has been participating. And um, we've been learning uh, what people think uh, RAD is, for example, uh, and is it accurate? We've been uh, hearing from all different uh, avenues, the residents. We've heard from uh, others on financing ideas. We've looked at uh, having a dis really strong discussions on, well, are residents really protected when you make these transfers or these transitions? And those elements of that conversation are citywide, really. And I think um, part of what our job will be is to show if you transition a property from it, its current subsidy platform to a new one, whether it's RAD or some other vehicle, are the families who live there going to be able to stay? And uh, will we be able to guarantee that there's no displacement? And we'll be able to uh, do that in a way that, that they feel safe. So that's, that's all part yes. of that conversation. And those issues have been brought up again and again. It's, it's a challenge. It is a challenge. You have shown them leases. Yes. You have experience in Cambridge doing this where yeah. tenants have been protected. Yet, both the tenants and some of the political actors who have... Uh, you know, interest and represent people, still don't believe it. Now, how do you get to that point? And one of the things you talked about was credibility. Yeah. And, and you know, so Andy Byford um, has resigned. And one of the things, Andy um, did a really good job of executing and, and awareness of is that quick wins matter because mm -hmm. there's credibility. And credibility, as you say, kind of give you the degrees of freedom to do what you have to do. What do you think about what are the quick wins that you can achieve and gain that credibility? Because right now you've discussed protections of tenants, but people don't buy it still. So one of the things we've thought about as a result of uh, the working group and other discussions is uh, offering families a family protection contract. Um, this would be an individual agreement that we would sign with each household. It would include almost all the protections we're discussing at Fulton plus the RAD roundtable and would bring that to a place where it's one document. Uh, it would be, uh, it would, in addition to establishing the protections, it would establish uh, understandings particular to the property where we're working. So some developments might have relocation early, temporary relocation to do work and then come back, or how is that going to look? And we used versions of this at, uh, in Minneapolis and Cambridge that it would touch on, here's your rights as a resident, Here's your options, and uh, clearly spells out how you're protected. And then it goes on to say, during the course of this uh, effort, um, here's your relocation rights. Uh, if we have to move you temporarily to do some work, here's how you get to come back and what, what we do. And then lastly, here's the phasing schedule for this property and what the work's about. So actually giving someone something they can hold in their hand uh, and is enforceable, I think uh, would be uh, one of the ways that we could begin to turn the conversation. $2 billion of financing in NYCHA 2.0 is from infill development. For those who don't live these words every day, that means there's underutilized um, developable land on NYCHA yes. um, properties yeah. and, and developing mixed-use housing not only produces more um, housing in the city, which it needs, but can, if the right um, income mix is... Um, included can throw off money to help repair NYCHA apartments. That's $2 billion of financing. Yet you, there's been, a, you know, in one case, the Manhattan Borough President, you know, um, filed a court case against 
to stop one, and it was withdrawn by the city. Um, how can you break the logjam on infill development and get that income mix that will actually give you the money to do what you have to do? Well, I think uh, we're in the discussion on how to do that now at the, at the Fulton site. And I think that actually is going to vary from property to property. I think uh, uh, we have to show that, um, that that investment has dividends for the families who live there and in a way that um, does not cast some kind of shadow over their occupancy. And uh, bringing in uh, the right mix of units, uh, the right uh, partner to work with us on that will all be critical, I think, to demonstrating that we can do it. And uh, I think uh, the other thing that's important is um, what are we asking for in terms of uh, an investment and how would, uh, how would that look at a particular site? And can we explain the numbers to the residents? I think one of the things that is interesting is to sit in these groups and folks say, well, how do you know you need that much? And, and what, how did you validate that number? And, um, and then the residents also want to know if we do infill, um, what's that investment going to yield? So it's not much different than if uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, there's the same question, I think, that whoever's putting money into it is asking, but from a different side. And I think that we have to answer that question for them um, and show that the infill can provide tangible improvement. And we could use the proceeds from those kinds of transactions to invest in your unit, and that investment would look like this. And the this part, defining it, is going to be different, I think, a little bit for each property. So it's about the information flow and convincing people yes. that you're credible and can... Yeah. Uh, Moving to the operating side, which is how, in part, you build credibility. I mean, you, you told a story to me once about walking into an apartment and someone's sink was on the floor, and you, you said, well, what happened? They were fixing a leak but never came back. And you asked where she was eating dinner, and she said her sister's house. I That's right. Good. So CBC documented that um, NYCHA's you know, operating costs are 39% higher than the private sector. Um, and obviously, you talked about work orders. There were all the problems that I mentioned before. What is the fundamental issue with improving operations? Is it not having enough money? Is it labor agreements that don't allow you to structure work um, efficiently? Is it the management organization, and you talk about property-based management, or is it management capacity? And you're going to say all. So how would you rank those things? <laughs> yes, it's a multiple choice, and yes, all of the above. Um, so I'd say that the first thing to think about is uh, NYCHA has an obligation under the lease to its residents to deliver basic services. A lot of the work that we're doing with the monitor team is about trying to improve that. So that's, I think, a good place to start. Um, in terms of how NYCHA has organized itself, um, that's a structure that we need to rebalance. Uh, if I look at our overall portfolio uh, and look at the distribution of our staff, um, we need to be able to shift resources uh, out of the central office uh, and put it into the field. And we need to have an organization that um, functions like um, a responsible owner. Uh, and that means that your, your focus is at the property level. I think in large institutions like ours, it's easy to get distracted 
by all the various things that we have to do. And I'm not saying they're not unimportant, they are. But at the same time, um, we need to make uh, both a, a, re a resource investment, both money and people, in the property. Now, let's talk about people for a second. So if we were managing in a normal environment, if we were managing, say, at a housing authority that had been invested in or we had invested in those properties, our work demands would look completely different. Uh, the amount of work orders, the number of work orders we'd be getting uh, would be different. The demands on staff would be different, but we're not. We're managing in a capital deficit. And because of that, uh, almost everything you touch, so let's go back to mold for a second. You fix the leak in the unit, but the piping is so old that you've caused a leak above or below that unit that you now have to fix a second time. Um, that's an infrastructure problem. That's not just about delivering repair service. So um, uh, the idea would be that we have to move on those areas all at the same time. We have to engage our uh, labor partners in a discussion about uh, how can we work this together as we try to advance the delivery of services and um, what would that look like? Um, you know, those discussions are, I think, a prerequisite to us uh, beginning to talk to our labor partners about um, how we got to work together and what it means to work together um, under the monitorship. Uh, the second thing we have to do, we are in the process of doing a reorganization plan. That's required by the agreement, and that has to be a document that's not just a box on a piece of paper. That actually has to touch the culture. And that document will be due to the monitor um, in June, and we um, fully hope to provide the monitor teams working with us, obviously, a plan that would show a different organization on the other side of that. And the third thing we have to do um, is raise capital. And we have to do all those things together. I don't think they can work separately. They have to work in combination. Let's break that down a little on the labor side. Yes. So in our report, we noted that job descriptions are pretty tight. So someone who could do three, you know, three different tasks in an apartment, actually you need three trades. And then Work shifts are generally Monday through Friday, have been traditionally Monday through Friday, nine to five. Mm -hmm. So you have to get them coordinated with the tenant who might be working nine to five. Correct. So there are plenty of obstacles here. Now, you did sign, NYCHA did sign with the caretakers in agreement and got flexibility in work shifts, but paid. Anybody who takes a, an alternative work schedule suddenly gets a, a $1,500 bonus. There's an annuity increase and a shift differential. And then the rollout was pretty bumpy because it seemed from the outside, and I, again, I'd love to hear the, the truer story from the inside, that people chose to do these shifts without regard necessarily the NYCHA needs or the complement of staff you need at those hours to actually get work done. It's just not a certain staff who chose to work on a Saturday. You need actually the right three people to work on Saturday. How do we afford um, paying for all these um, flexibilities and get them d done well? So if I think about, uh, uh, which is really a complicated question, uh, let's think about. First, um, we need to think about work rules. We need to think about what is acceptable when we have a conversation with um, uh, the, our union partners. Um, what changes could we make there, and can we navigate that together in some way? And to your point, um, 
for example, we are working on a, a, a job description that uh, is more of a generalist type position. And we want to be able to um, uh, create that. And then we want to make sure that um, uh, our union partners are comfortable with that because uh, uh, this would be a position that could do some limited trade work. So you could go in a unit and have more like a mechanic who could fix a number of things at the same time. There are other options. There's, um, we're talking to, uh, you know, uh, on the heat side, we're doing 24-7 uh, uh, work now and looking to do the same thing on elevators. I think there'll be other modifications to shifts at the property. I think one of the things that NYCHA has to live with is, if you look at our staffing now compared to where we were in the 90s, um, and this was before we had the 15 years of additional capital, uh, that number has changed dramatically, it's shrunk. And in part because the amount of money available to for the operating subsidy has changed. And um, we have to think about a bridge approach that would get us some staffing and resources at the property level and find the uh, resources for that. So I think uh, this is a long discussion, uh, both internally in terms of how we're structured and how we manage as an institution, but also uh, talking to our labor partners and figuring out if there is uh, if there are revisions that we can jointly agree to that shine a light on the new NYCHA. Are you optimistic on those conversations with labor that we can actually get to that place and afford to get to that place um, under the premise that we have to pay for it like we did with the sure. current contract when your operating budget is stressed? Uh, I am, actually. Uh, I think that uh, we have a certain reality in terms of how we work at NYCHA and, and the contractual commitments that we've made, but I believe that we can show a path. I think one of the, you know, one of the examples, if we are actually able to invest, if we invested in nothing but heat, if we changed um, all, our, most of our systems are central boiler systems, so we lose 20% efficiency to the, to the chimney. We lose another 30% efficiency in the distribution lines. So by the time it gets to the building, we've already consumed um, half the uh, uh, energy that we need. If we went to building-based systems uh, across the portfolio, that's an enormous number, even at NYCHA's rates, because we get a very discounted rate because we're buying uh, utilities in bulk. But even that would be a significant change in the operating profile. Now, that would take time to do, but um, the second part of that is we'd cut down on the number of heat work orders. So there are, and if we make the right investments and we think about the sequencing, there's a different organization that has strategic investments and very important capital that will definitely impact uh, our operating costs and impact the workload, which then impacts the operating costs. So there's a longer game here. And when I say a bridge, I literally mean for some period of time, we are going to have to bridge these properties till we can get to that place. And that's why you can't do um, the site work without doing the capital investment. They both have to work together. So you talked, you've talked about devolving management down to the property. Yes, yeah. 
which I think many people in, the, in this room, if this is their business, are very experienced with. What right. can you learn from the private sector and what, how could you partner and the private sector actually help? Well, uh, if you're managing property in the private sector, you're managing with a property-based budget. You have a property-based management plan, and we need to adopt both of those practices. We need to make an investment in training our staff on what it means to uh, actually truly manage their budget. And then um, at the same time that we're training our staff, we want to train a lot of the resident leadership so that the numbers are transparent. So if you and I were sitting together at the property, we could say, okay, we're six months into the fiscal year. Where do we stand? Um, you know, uh, we've had a problem with one of the doors. Uh, can we afford to put uh, a camera back there? And is that money in the budget or do we have to ask somebody else for it? Those are all very basic questions that I think are very hard to do um, at NYCHA now in the current alignment, and we have to change that. The second thing is we have to expose, I think, our property managers to other management practices. And we've been kicking around the idea of, as part of the training, having, uh, if we had a, a, a private sector firm that was interested, we'd like our managers to intern for a month with that firm and learn what, you know, or, uh, you know, well, this is how we do it here. And it doesn't look like how we do it over there. So between those two experiences, would you come back into NYCHA with some ideas about um, how to manage property? Because in housing authorities, not just in NYCHA, the tendency is to centralize. You know, you're a big institution. You want to, if something's not working, well, let's get a task force or a group, and then we'll attack it. But in, in fact, we have to do that for some things, but there's a whole chunk of work that doesn't really lend itself to that, that it's really at the property level. And that, um, that conversation with some of the uh, private firms we'd be interested in having because we want um, our managers to learn both how we want to manage at NYCHA but how other people manage and can they bring those best practices back. Well, if we can be of service in that. Um, we'll have we a, so let's, yes, let's continue yeah. to have that conversation. Yeah, no, we'd like to because you know. uh, I think part of the reorganization plan will be staff training. Mm -hmm. And part of that would be how we um, get people to a level where they're capable of managing better. And before we open up to questions, I two quick ones. One is some people who don't spend their lives in this say, why do we need NYCHA? Why do we need public housing at all? Why should New Yorkers care? Well, uh, the simple answer to that is look at the incomes we serve. If you think you can take that income and uh, live anywhere else in, in this market, uh, it's not going to happen. We have um, one of the toughest housing markets in the country, uh, both in terms of supply and expense. Um, that's true here. Uh, it's also true in some of the other places I've had a chance to work. Um, so this is a community resource. This is, um, uh, NYCHA is just not important for its own sake. It, it is to some extent, but you have um, all these folks uh, with the potential uh, risk of displacement if we do not invest and preserve. We have uh, families, many of whom are working families. There are many, many working families in NYCHA. And they're, they live in NYCHA because even with the employment income, they're not able to rent or purchase in the external market. And the other thing, the investment in NYCHA 
if we can succeed as a community, has profound impacts on healthcare. That if we can change the environment that folks live in, we're going to have uh, an ancillary effect in a totally different sector. Um, and uh, that, that uh, I think that's a significant conversation in terms of how do you improve the overall livability of a city. And one way is to change the way NYCHA works and invest in... The other, other part of that is if you... Is that us? I don't think you said anything that controversial. Yeah. Danger, Will Robinson. Uh, you know, if anybody remembers that show? Uh, uh, but, um, but that is um, a dollar of public housing capital yields about $2.12 in economic impact. And how many dollars of public housing capital do you think you'll be investing in the next 10 years? I'd like to raise uh, upwards of $15 billion. $15 billion. To start. <laughs> it's, it's good to start. Um, one last before we ask. Do you have the political support you need to be successful? Yeah, I feel we do. I, I don't come here thinking everyone's just going to line up because there's a new guy in this seat or a new person. Um, but I've, I think the city's been incredibly supportive. I think that um, when we've had a chance to engage um, uh, electeds in a good conversation, they kind of understand where we are, and it's been very helpful. So um, uh, I do think it's not going to be without controversy, and folks are entitled to their opinions about uh, things like RAD and so forth. But we have to demonstrate that we can answer their questions and we can also answer the questions of their constituents. And I think over time people will see that we can try it, we can do that. So we're just going to keep talking over this thing for a little while. Yeah. But open it up for questions if that's okay from our trustees. That's fine, yeah. That's great. Um, so you've all had enough time to think of your questions. <laughs> don't be distracted by that don't, voice. Don't be distracted. <laughs> we have to keep focused. That's, that's the ability. Please. Uh, hi, I can't see you over the podium, but uh, the, uh, hi. hi. Uh, question relates to the uh, the homeless crisis and homeless families in particular. What do you see as NYCHA's role in making that better? Uh, NYCHA is already providing resources for that. We have uh, a preference for homeless family admissions, and we are making units available on a uh, monthly and annual basis uh, for those families um, as part of our kind of routine. So we are making a contribution in terms of hard units that families could move to. And I, I do think that's, a, uh, uh, that's an appropriate role for us um, uh, in terms of a contribution for uh, choices for those families to... Thank you. Uh, I want to go back to the 39% figure that Andy raised, which is the costs of the operating costs of NYCHA are 39 percent above comparable private sector uh, costs. And I'd like to narrow in a little bit more on the primary reason why that is so. I can't help thinking that it has to do with the cost of labor and, and probably work rules. And I'm curious about in all the other places where you've been involved in public housing, have you faced the level of um, 
of work rule inflexibility that you find in New York, and are there other ways to deal with those, like contracting out? Um, so yes, I've worked, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, and Cambridge were all uh, uh, organized uh, labor environment. Uh, in fact, in Cambridge, uh, we had the Teamsters Union, I have the Teamsters here. And um, there are ways to work inside that model because we've negotiated these agreements over time. Those agreements set out um, requirements for wages, benefits, and other contributions that NYCHA is required to make under those contracts. And um, I think the place that is, uh, there's opportunity is to change is to engage the, uh, the unions in a conversation about where are the places that we see uh, the most cost and can we shift, uh, can we actually have a discussion on how those work rules could be modified mutually to lower that cost. The second thing is that uh, I really believe that some of the cost, I wouldn't say all of it, is driven by the unit conditions unit, the unit conditions that in a recapitalized property, uh, the whole work order profile would be different. Uh, there'd be fewer work orders. There'd be uh, work orders that are less expensive. It's, it's not a situation where just to fix the leak, we have to take a wall out and replaster the whole wall. So I think there's savings to be captured there if we can make the investment. And the last thing I'd say is that, um, you know, if we're able to position the portfolio, we're going to show that part of the reason we're able to reposition it financially is we're going to commit to an operating cost reduction so that we can free some of that operating cost for debt service. So um, that would be part of the approach. I can't predict how uh, 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 our rep union representatives are going to react to that, but we'll have a conversation. I think there's savings that are achievable. Um, for example, uh, Chicago, we had a lot of issues and we created a thing called neutral duties, which the trade signed off on, and that allowed us to create a job title around that um, because it wasn't whether it was a carpenter or a plaster or electrician or whatever, but we had certain duties that could be performed by any, uh, any skill or any mechanic. So there's ways to, to get at this and we're obligated under the contracts and we're obligated under the monitorship agreement to make that effort to, to have those discussions. I was just checking on the circumstance since, you know, the alarm went off and we were maybe going to cut ourselves short with the alarm stopping. Maybe we'll give ourselves a couple of more minutes. Sure, that's, if, that's fine. If that's okay. Yeah. And I missed the end. Did you discuss at all whether the monitor could help you with those labor contracts? Well, we hope to have, Bart and I have talked about that. Uh, we uh, we want to have, a, I'd like to have an informal discussion first. Uh, some of the stuff we touch uh, is likely going to involve... Uh, uh, sitting down formally at the table if, if they're game. And we've talked about approaching uh, uh, represented uh, workforce and their leadership and having a discussion about how that could work. So 
And that's something we may, in fact, do jointly. Thank you. So the several thousand units turnover each year as people vacate. Uh, and uh, those are, a lot of times when we do turnover, we'll do a more extensive work in those units, including when we can, we'll do lead abatements. Pardon? That includes units taken out of service for uh, repair? Yes, yeah. And then what's the waiting list for public Oh, counsel? I don't know that it's enormous. Uh, 250,000. Uh, my question has to do with uh, long-term institutional change. Yeah. We've had a lot of uh, very dynamic, uh, successful folks in your position um, who haven't been able to accomplish um, what you're trying to do. And presumably, um, you won't be with us uh, forever. The track record is it won't be that many years. Um, <laughs> but taking the optimistic view, yes. uh, how, how can you maybe take advantage of the monitor and the situation, the, the, the environment that attracted you to this job to make permanent institutional changes that you've described so that um, this is long-lasting beyond your tenure? So uh, uh, the way the agreement is structured, uh, we are compelled to change uh, the organization. Uh, we want to come up uh, with a set of ideas, a, a framing, a, a generation one plan, if you want to call it that, um, that lays out how NYCHA could look if the focus was on the properties. And um, so that's one thing. Now, the way the agreement is structured, if uh, we present that plan and uh, the monitor decides that uh, uh, it's not adequate or there's other issues, he is authorized under the agreement to present a counter uh, uh, if, he, if he feels that's necessary. So either way, NYCHA has to change. Um, our uh, working relationship has been such that we think we can do the reorganization mutually in conversation and come up with a plan that uh, Bart and his team can, can sign off on. Um, but uh, this is a different moment, as kind of what I alluded to earlier. We've never been in a position where the idea of the change has to be fully executed. And that's really where we are now. We, can't, we could have a number of good ideas uh, put the plans in place, and then right behind them, we have to start making new organizational changes. And what's different is in the monitorship, uh, that will be observed and evaluated. So I think there's a chance to uh, really make a structural change that outlasts, uh, certainly outlasts myself, because we have a different set of rules that are being applied. And let's remember who's at the table in the agreement. It's the Southern District, it's the city, it's NYCHA, and it's HUD. And um, HUD is up once a month from D.C. Uh, to meet with the monitor and our team and the Southern District and the city. And they're very much interested in this. And I'd say the creative part of this is there's not a housing authority in history that's had an agreement like this and there's not a housing authority in the history of the program that has the commensurate opportunity that the agreement may provide. So this is a moment to redefine who we are. Well, with that, 
and in the interest in timeliness and efficiency, two high criteria, high, high value criteria at CBC, we will end both doing a business meeting this breakfast and getting people out on time. But thank you very much. Thank Brent. you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.